I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Hey there. Ever wonder what happens to all those amazing screenplays that never make it to the big screen? Wonder no more. Welcome to Table Read Podcast, where we bring those undiscovered gems to life. Picture this. Talented actors giving incredible performances with the occasional laugh or blooper thrown in, produced by award-winning pros. From drama to comedy, TV pilots to feature films, there's something for everyone. And guess what? We release new episodes every week, so don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Table Read Podcast, where great stories finally get their chance to shine. You're listening to Muses and Stuff, the podcast that celebrates those who live, love, and breathe rock and roll. From the incredible groupies, girlfriends, and wives who went after what and who they wanted, to the journalists, photographers, and other behind-the-scenes characters who play such an important part in rock and roll history. We are your hosts, Shanti and Lynx. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Electrified Porcupine, bringing you the best in collectibles, movies, music, wrestling, gaming, and more. Check it out at electrifiedporcupine.com. Hey there, this is Christian Swain from the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Rock and Roll Archaeology? What's that you say? We are a podcast network dedicated to digging deep into the amazing music that exploded out of the second half of the 20th century. We believe the music, culture, and technology wove together, and it is an important story of history as, say, the Italian Renaissance or the Impressionists of Paris. We have six shows, all with a different side of this incredible time. Rock Talk with myself and host Peter Ferrioli. Real Rock, and that's R-E-E-L, hosted by Andy King. Vinyl Snob with the legendary Dave Whitaker. Rock and Roll Librarian with the headmistress herself, Shelley Sorensen. Deeper Digs in Rock, where I interview famous rock and roll personalities and the people who scribed the times and events. 
And finally, our full telling of the history of rock and roll, the Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast, which started it all. Find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts. So let's get back to Between the Sheets of Rock and Roll with Shanty and Lynx and Muses and Stuff. Hello, Lynx. Hello. How you do? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. The sun is shining. I know. It's a nice day. It's like finally uh, a hint of spring is here. Mm, yeah, I love it. And uh, I've got a little bit of a cold, so excuse my voice, mm-hmm. but it's getting better before it got worse. So that's always good. I'm going to try not to be a mouth breather. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and um, I haven't, I don't know who we're doing today. Yeah. This one's a little different. It's special. She's not really a muse or a groupie in the regular sense. We're talking about Anne Moses. Uh, she worked for Tiger Beat magazine. Okay. Interesting. Um, her book, uh, it was called Meow, My Groovy Life with Tiger Beat's Teen Idols. Oh, it yeah. was like the cutest book. Like you're smiling the whole time you're reading it. There's tons of stuff in there. I left out so much. So like people, especially if you're into like the whole teen idol thing, there's so much more there. So then we have a couple of fun ones coming up then. Yeah. I mean, I feel like they're for the most part fun, no. but uh, this is a little bit different. And then next week is really silly. Mm-hmm. So let's do it. Yeah. I'm in a silly mood. I know. It's okay. nice. It's nice to have this like lightness and uh, I definitely feel like Anne belongs in our roster. So okay, I'm excited. Welcome, Anne. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I wanted to say I did look up to see if Tiger Beat still exists and it does. I don't know if like you can buy it in the stores, but they have like a new flashy online website and everything. And uh, I did not recognize a single person. <laughs> I wouldn't either, but I remember buying those magazines, and I'm so happy that my parents were the kind of parents that let me mm-hmm. plaster stuff all over my bedroom. Oh, yeah. And my whole back door was yeah. covered, and um, yeah. Devin Sawa, Leonardo oh, DiCaprio, WSB. Sure. I, uh, I definitely yeah. had some Leo up on my wall, and Devin. I really liked... Uh, Brad Renfro as well. Yeah. I liked like the bad boys, you know, the bad boys, <laughs> <laughs> the tiger beat bad boys, tiger which just means like boys. an angry expression. <laughs> 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 yeah. Um, this is going to be really cool then. Cause I get into a little more detail of like how the magazine, uh, oh, came to be. Yeah. And it's such a fan fanzine. Yeah. And and does make a point to say in the in her book. Do you think we could get in? Do you think to that what? we could get into Tiger Beat? I think we're like a little too. We're too risque. Yeah. Oh, we're too right. Okay. Yeah. All right. I mean, these episodes maybe aren't, but overall, in general, I would say no. Yeah. <laughs> that wasn't well formed thought. <laughs> 
Um, and yeah, she makes a point to say like she's not a groupie, but I do feel like she falls under like our kind of groupie spectrum that we talk about where like, she, but she's more like a fangirl groupie than like, you know, um, a let's go back to my place kind of groupie. <laughs> okay. We have that one next week coming Great. up. Awesome. So yeah, um, Anne was born in 1947. Uh, her parents, Rosemary and Jackson, uh, they, she had like a really lovely um, childhood. Her parents were really great. Her dad, I think, was like the VP of a, a bank in California. Um, she had an older brother named Jack. Uh, I think the family lived in Compton until around when she was seven. She moved to Anaheim. Um, Mighty Ducks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, her childhood, yeah, it was exactly what you'd imagine, like suburban 50s. Very pleasant, no locked doors. Um, because she moved to Anaheim, uh, she was very close to Disneyland. And Disneyland actually opened two years, I think, um, or a couple years before. Yeah. Sorry. Nobody fact check that. I did. Sorry. It was July 17th, 1955 that Disneyland opened. Okay. So there's your fact. <laughs> Um, and yeah, it was just two miles from Anne's house. So when her brother was 10, he began working there with his best friend, Steve. And, uh, that sounds legal. Yeah. Right. Uh, they sold the daily Disneyland newspaper and guidebooks. And she says like Jack saved all his money to buy a car, but his friend Steve was like spending it in the magic shop and was just like, you know, a party fun kid and um steve wanted to be a performer and uh he succeeded you may have heard of steve martin yeah (laughs) um i just thought that was cute and in 1962 when ann was 15 she also got a job at disneyland i'm sure like every kid in anaheim that was close enough probably worked there at some that point. was you know 10 years old and up yeah um she worked the sun-kissed oj counter she was the counter girl so Anne was a really good student she describes herself as a pretty typical girl of the times in uh, her junior year she was the sports editor of her high school yearbook and in the senior year she was promoted to full editor she also wrote for the local Anaheim paper. Once a week, the paper had uh, a page that discussed like the happenings uh, at the schools and everything. And in eighth grade, she applied to be her school's reporter. She was paid 15 cents for every column inch. So that really encouraged her to write more. <laughs> uh, she also apparently wrote a few times for the Disneyland employee newsletter. And... Uh, one day, Walt Disney himself came up to the Sunkist OJ counter, and she kind of blurted that out at him. And he was like, well, like, keep keep at it. You never know where it's going to take you. So some words of encouragement from Mr. Disney. Her, uh, on top of her job at Disney, she also worked as a volunteer usher at the Melodyland Theater, which apparently was across the street from Disneyland. And they would get... Uh, stage musicals and sometimes bands and in July of 65 the Dave Clark Five were headlining two shows uh, with a duo called Sonny and Cher Hey-o. Uh, yeah. 
And she watched the DC five and she says like all she could think was like, wow, like I have to meet these guys. <laughs> so she noticed this man standing by the stage and she introduced herself to, uh, and he was uh, DC five's tour manager. His name is Rick. She told them she was the editor of her college newspaper and that she'd been assigned an article on DC five. Uh, she asked like, when will be a good time to interview the band? <laughs> And Rick was like, uh, no, <laughs> but she was like, not going to give up. So, uh, she was like, just five minutes. That's all I need. And Rick must have, you know, appreciated her nerve because he told her to come back in a few hours before the second show. So she raced home to change. She got her tape recorder. She, you know, got her nerve back again. And when she got there, uh, the boys were waiting and her five minutes ended up turning into 35 minutes oh, lovely. yeah uh and had a passion for writing but she really never imagined herself like interviewing musicians or celebrities or anything but as she says that night my path took a wild and unexpected direction a wild turn in an unexpected direction that night was definitely a game changer so she watched them perform and after her interview uh she was just like, this is what I got to do. This is what I got to yeah. do. No turning back. So when it was published in her uh, college paper, she never expected the reaction that she got. Her friends really couldn't believe that she'd write something about some silly, long-haired British band. And, uh, you know, they're not making a difference like Bob Dylan. Like, you should be writing about Dylan. And... But and was like, hey, I had fun and like it makes me feel good. So she just didn't let it bother her. Yeah. And um, a girl named Tracy Thomas had read the article and really loved it as well. And Tracy's mom published a weekly music newspaper called Rhythm and News. And they invited her to write for it. So it was no pay, but good music, interesting acts and some great interviews. Some of her assignments included... Oh, bless you. Excuse me. Some of her assignments included writing interviews on people such as James Brown, Tina Turner, Sam Cooke, Nina Simone, Wilson Pickett. So she got to see like a lot of cool shows and uh, meet some of them. And uh, it was working for the paper that kind of taught her how important making contacts was and everything and she met a man named Derek Taylor who was the press agent for the Beatles before he moved out to LA he was now working with the Beach Boys when she met him like, and why does that name sound so familiar yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, she ended up doing like a lot of pieces on his clients so he's like her Eric, Eric. shout out Eric <laughs> so another writer for uh, Rhythm and News introduced Anne to the magazine Tiger Beat. Lottie Powell, Ralph Benner, and Chuck Lawfer all used to work at Teen Magazine, but they left to start Tiger or Tiger Beat Magazine, and that was in September '65. Uh, they were really new on the scene, but they were quickly becoming a popular magazine and at the time 16 mag was really the only teen magazine in the country that was like you know making good money and everything so um they and 
16 magazine had been around since 1957, I believe. And I long for the days where life was just so simple and all I could ever hope for was a new Goosebump book and... Right? It does bring you back, new issue of Tiger Beat. Waiting to see, like, who they would have in the centerfold, like, like what new poster you would get. Oh, yeah. So, Tiger Beat magazine was very different from Sixteen magazine. Sixteen was more professional and corporate, and where... Um, they usually printed stock photos. Tiger Beat was posting candids and where their articles were less personal. Tiger Beats were, you know, when Anne would write, she would write like my day with such and such. And so it had such a personal touch on, on top of what the information you were getting and the printing photos, uh, their staff, Sorry, they also printed photos of their staff hanging out with the celebrities. So the readers saw like, oh, these people really are connecting to these people. They, And they also got to kind of live through Anne. So overall, it was just a much more amazing magazine. And they also ran color and full-page glossy pinup shots of the stars, where 60 Magazine only ran two color process photos on newsprint. So they were really causing a stir. This was like a new magazine. This was a new way of giving readers, you know, what they wanted. It was learning that they got paid that really piqued Anne's interest. She picked up a copy and she noticed that Derek Taylor wrote a monthly column for it called Group Scoops. I like it. Yeah. So the next time she went... Scoopy. Right? (laughs) (laughs) The next time she went to Derek's office, she mentioned, like, oh, I saw you are in the magazine. Like, I wouldn't mind working there. And he immediately called Ralph, uh, who was the magazine's editorial director, and and ended up getting an interview. uh, And, like, that day. And she had no uh, resume, none of her writing on her, nothing. But he told her to rewrite two of her pieces in a style that would fit Tiger Beat, so she did just that on her uh, DC5 and one that she had done on James Brown. And she returned on Monday morning to Tiger Beat headquarters. And after reading them, Ralph asked Anne if she wanted to come work part-time for the magazine. Just like that. Cool. Yeah. So she'd been hoping for some like extra freelance work, but here she was you know, with a real job now. So Anne worked as a part-time editorial assistant for the first six months and uh, in July of 66, she would become the feature editor. So um, she really had to learn the differences between writing for, like, an adult magazine and then writing for little tweens. So that's that first six months was, like, really important for her. And... Um, she also has to learn all the tween lingo and the questions really had to be like these light breezy, you know, what's your favorite color? Like what, what's your dream day? Have you ever thought about cutting your hair? <laughs> yeah. Um, and of course the, the people always had to come off as accessible and sweet and most importantly single. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
And on a more serious note, Anne would learn a great deal about publishing and marketing and PR and the art of networking. And since she began taking her camera everywhere, the art of photography. Love it. Yeah. So Anne was no stranger to the L.A. music venues. And one night while at the Whiskey, she met a cute Canadian musician named Skip. And Skip was friends with Jefferson Airplane. This was like pre-Grace Slick in the band, though. She made friends with them, and a month later, they invited her to the recording studio to hang out, and they were headed back to San Francisco that night, and Anne offered to drive them to the airport, and that kind of led to her being invited, like, why don't you come come to San Fran with us? And uh, she figured, you know, why not? That's right. It's the right attitude. Right? Why not? She called Ralph. She told him she'd be away for a few days. And when he found out why, he was, like, thrilled, of course. He's like, oh, write about it, write about it. So um, this has nothing to do with Anne's story, but it's something insane she mentions in it. Um, She talks about how easy, like, air travel was back then. And she said all you had to do was, you know, walk on the plane, take any empty seat. And during a flight, a stewardess would come and take your airfare. (laughs) And she said this round-trip flight from L.A. to San Fran cost her $25. Those were the days. Right? It's so expensive to just fly in Canada from Ontario to Halifax or, like, Ontario to British Columbia. Yeah. It's It's absurd. Absurd. It's crazy. Ugh, $25 round And the trip. train isn't even cheaper. No, Sometimes it's the same. It's more expensive. I know, it's crazy. <laughs> you think, oh, I'll settle, and then, like, nope. <laughs> um, so when they arrived at the Jefferson Flat, which was, of course, in the Haight-Ashbury area, uh, the first thing the band did was exclaimed, let's get high. Uh-oh. <laughs> so Anne came clean to them that, like, I've never really gotten high before. Don't do it, Anne. She did do it, but she says she didn't feel it at all. So maybe Anne was like too straight. It just, even the weed was like, nope. (laughs) Um, Jefferson were opening a gig that night and they were opening for none other than the Rolling Stones. Yeah. So Anne says she tried to you know, appear nonchalant while learning this news, but inside she was kind of freaking out. And they were all hanging out backstage, and Joan Baez apparently was there as well. And she mentions that the Stones were apparently attracted to her, and they kind of were all gathered around Joan Baez. But then Mick noticed Anne, and he walked over, and he was like, hello, love. And Mm -hmm. they chatted for a while, and the rest of the Stones ended up kind of straying away from Joan and over to Anne. And they chatted about uh, their first documentary that they'd made, which was called Charlie is My Darling. And they were talking about the tour and they were going to go on a holiday in Hawaii or some place like that. And so they would just chatted for a while. So and Anne was a real cutie? Yeah. Here, I got photos all ready for you right here. Yahoo! And. Oh, yeah. She's yeah, cutie. She's adorable. She was a babe. So when the stones went on. She says, I placed myself just below Mick's feet at center stage, so close that during the show I was showered with Jagger sweat and began madly shooting pictures. And oh, the, I'm looking at that one right now. Right? Yep. Those pictures would later um, be published in the magazine on, uh, for Stone's articles. 
So Anne slept at the Jefferson house with Spencer, the drummer, who was a perfect gentleman and he didn't try anything on her. And then the next afternoon, Anne went exploring in the hate and then she flew home and that was sort of her first uh, rock and roll adventure out of L.A. Or out of, you know, Anaheim. So... One of the biggest bands at the time that was featured in practically every issue of Tiger Beat was Paul Revere and the Raiders. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know any of their songs? Mm, you off should the top check of my out, head. You should check out Kicks. Okay. So Anne was the first person of choice to cover them. And she ended up becoming very friendly with the guys. They hosted a national music variety show called Where the Action Is. And that made Anne sort of a regular on that set. Uh, They were touring that summer and Anne was invited to come along for four days on the tour bus and write about it. Oh, that's yeah. Yeah. This is just the first of many tour buses for Anne. It it reminds me of um, actually the interview that we're going to have after this episode. Yeah. It sounds like what our girl in the interview was hoping to do. Oh, cool. Right? Yeah. And I honestly, I just clicked into this. I don't know how I missed it before, but Anne is like totally William Miller. She's, you know, young and straight laced, like has fun and everything, but just you know a little outside of the rock and roll world and trying to get those interviews on that bus oh i love it right and um speaking of outside world when we did our episode on pauline butcher and frank zappa pauline commented on the episode and said that it was brilliant i know it's so exciting (laughs) uh we gotta we gotta ask her for an interview sometime So Anne had to leave the tour before a certain date in Miami um, because Gloria Stavers, who was the editor of Sixteen Magazine, was coming. And apparently she was not at all a fan of Tiger Beat since they were, you know, really becoming fast competition. So the first night on tour, Harpo and Fang, these are two of the Raiders, I guess, uh, they told Anne... Um, that to be on the tour, she had to be initiated, which meant getting high with them. And she tried it again, and uh, this time it was a success. <laughs> and she says she had a lot of fun, and they had, like, you know, a giggle fest. And she says, It rarely occurred to me back then that I was living the dreams of the girls I was writing for, hanging out with cute teen idol rock stars till the wee hours, having the very kind of chaste fun I was forced to write about. Well, mostly chaste. That just nails... <laughs> wait, how is the expression? Nail the... Oh, I'm too sick for this. The hammer on the head? Hammer on the head. <laughs> That's it. It's exactly what the girls... Yeah, what they dream of. Hanging out with the bands, going on tour, interviewing them. That's it, man. And we didn't, yeah, totally, yeah, into it. So Anne and Harpo came very close to having, like, their own little night to remember. Uh, But they were interrupted by a hotel clerk who, like, knocked on Anne's door. So I was like, there's no men allowed in the single room. (laughs) So unfortunately, she got uh, blocked there. (laughs) Uh, and says even though they were, um they always mentioned how lovely bands were to, you know in Tiger Beat like they never 
said anything negative about the people that they wrote about. But that's not always the case in real life. Uh, she does say, though, that the Raiders were as sweet as you can imagine. And they really went beyond the Call of Duty. She says that on tour, they would get up at the crock of, crack of dawn, at the crock of dawn, crock apparently, dawn. Um, and accept long distance collect calls from fans. These girls would call them and the band would spend hours passing the phone around and talking to all these girls who are so sweet. Right. Um, on the bus and describes a scene. Yeah. Out of almost famous. She would have a recorder and uh, some of them would sleep while she interviewed others. Some would strum their guitars and they did actually do like group sing alongs and things like that. So things were really going great until Gloria from 16 magazine pulled some bullshit power play and showed Damn up Gloria. early. Yeah. Um, she got right in Anne's face and she said, I'm taking over now. So I better not see your camera out of its bag or you'll be off this tour. So Anne at this point is like 18, 19 years old and Gloria is like 40. So of course, Anne is like intimidated by this woman. Um, I think the woman was like close to Anne's mother's age. So mm -hmm. it's like, how, why is this adult, you know, doing this? But uh, Anne went to the back of the bus and slowly hurt that intimidation kind of turned into like anger. <laughs> and she devised a plan. Um, the Raiders and the band that was opening for the Raiders, which was Dino, Desi and Billy, um, they didn't like Gloria's attitude at all as either. So they together would like secretly call and tell her when Gloria wasn't around, they would do these like secret photo sessions and interviews and stuff. So Anne got all, all the, you know, info she needed for all her little articles and everything. Nice. Yeah. And of course, looking back and says she like understands Gloria was dealing with, you know, her own issues of, you know, intimidation, you know, as cute young girl comes in, connects with the band in a way that Gloria doesn't. And from this magazine that's starting to get, you know, better sales than hers. And but that's no excuse to be an asshole to someone. Um, but yeah, Gloria could have been nicer, but what wasn't and and got what she needed in the end. And she went home. Um, I'm going to talk like a little bit professionally for a minute before going back into like all the fun stories. I'm just going to like throw out all the the Tiger Beat kind of facts at you. Throw it. All right. So Anne became feature editor in July of 66. She earned about 400 a month and the job came with some awesome perks if, you know, being with these musicians weren't a perk enough. Um, she got to choose a car. Her first one she chose was a gold Pontiac Le Mans. And the company leased it for her, gave her money for gas and insurance, and she had a $25 a month expense count. So before Anne came to the magazine, her role in the magazine was sort of being filled by Sandy Denning, Deming. Under Sandy's byline, uh, there would be personal accounts of Sandy hanging out with all the cutest bands and, you know, doing what we all would we could do type of thing but the only problem was sandy didn't exist it was actually ralph writing those pieces uh -huh. and he knew he was a really smart man he knew it would resonate more with these tween girls if they thought a young girl like themselves was writing it really yeah very 
smart. <laughs> so now with Anne on the team, he had what he'd wanted all along. And Anne's role in the magazine like continued to grow and very quickly. She became or she came up with exciting ideas and assignments for her and then later for others in the staff. She contributed to pieces that didn't have her byline. And she also took over one of the biggest columns, which was called Meow, hence the title of her book. Yeah. She even helped bring others on board, like her friend Jeannie, who was a seamstress and began a fashion column. She also did freelance work. She worked for British magazines, including New Musical Express and a weekly column later called America Calling in Enemy. Oh, cool. Yeah. And she really loved doing those because obviously she could write for an adult audience and be critical if she wanted to be critical, something Tiger Bee would not allow. Enemy used to be my favorite music magazine, mm -hmm. and you could always get it at the Greyhound bus station in Toronto. So when I wasn't living in Toronto and I would take the bus, sometimes you'd have to come to Toronto to transfer the bus to wherever I was going. I would always pick up a copy of Enemy. And then when I was in London this summer, I heard that Enemy is free. No they way. don't sell it anymore. So all summer, I was looking around for Enemy Magazine, couldn't find it anywhere, and then I found out now it's just online. Wow. Yeah, so it went from you can buy it to yeah. it being free, and now it's just online. That's crazy. Yeah, I used to buy Enemy all the time as well. That's, yeah. I, I had no idea. I guess it's hard staying in print nowadays with everything online. Yeah, and it used to be my, when I was in university, it used to be my like uh, Google homepage Ah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I should I should do that again just for fun. See what's going on. Yeah. So yeah, she really loved these extra jobs, and Anne talks a, a lot in the book about the genius marketing schemes that Ralph and Chuck thought up to sell the magazine. They were really smart when it came to making money. Uh, of course, at the time, you're happy to be part of this magazine and you're thinking, oh, what a killer job I have. But of course, Anne, you know, was 19 and not thinking about the fact that she was working her ass off. The magazine was making like a ton of money and using her photographs and she didn't get paid extra for photos or anything like that. So, you know, looking back, it's like, damn, like they made a lot of money off me. Yeah. Um, and also put together little books for them. They would make like little booklets, the true story of Paul Revere and the Raiders, uh, which was also filled with her photos. And they only gave her a hundred dollars to write that and didn't even feature her as a, like her name in a byline. Thanks. Yeah. Um, she made other booklets for the magazine as well. Um, by September of 67, about two years after she started working there, uh, Tiger Beat was ready to premiere their sister magazine, which was called Tiger Beat's Fave, with the V in caps for some reason. I have no idea why. Um, that featured 20 full pages of color prints. And really, they were like the catalysts for like posters and magazines. And in October of 69, Chuck released another publication called Rona Barrett's Hollywood and, and had nothing to do with that, but... I mean, she had her hands full of Tiger Bean. Um, in 1970, the magazine went from 30 cents to 50 cents to buy. And skipping ahead, in 1978, Chuck ended up selling the magazine. At that point, the circulation was 700000 per month. And apparently, Chuck got $15 million for it. Oh, my. Yeah. So... Yeah, by her 21st birthday, Anne was officially the editor, and she got a number of raises, a much bigger expense count, and she got a new leased car every year. She was making more money than her dad was, 
Um, but it was really like never about money for her. She really just loved the job and, uh, she was, she really had a major role in the way the magazine was being run and the content it put out, even though, you know, Chuck and Ralph were like the bosses. Um, she was soon able to choose her own assignments and, you know, throw the other ones to staff who were under her and, uh, yeah, I'm going to rewind now. We're going to move a couple years back. I just wanted to throw out some interesting yeah, facts. Yeah, that was here. great. So one of Chuck's genius moments came after he saw an early pilot for the show The Monkees. He got an exclusive publishing deal on them as well as merch rights. So they really plastered Tiger Beat with these pieces and they made a ton of money off of it. And Chuck would do this for other TV shows. So they had this whole other stream of money coming in um, and he would use the magazine to like advertise what they were wanted to sell. It was really genius. So the monkeys with the monkeys, that meant that Anne had exclusive access to the group, and she began a new regular column called I Visit the Monkeys. <laughs> Anne was there for their first press junket, where they sang Last Train to Clarksville the day before the pilot aired. They um, released the single just before, so the audience already knew it, and they were really going crazy. And as part of the junket, the band jumped on the train, uh, not to Clarksville, <laughs> Uh, but the press were on it. Some lucky fans were on it. They got two more songs and they got to hang out with the guys. And Mickey, I guess, noticed how cute Anne was and he asked for her number. But I don't know. He must have lost it or something because he never called. Uh, her first interview with the van happened uh, a few days later, I think, at the TV studio. Davy gave her a set tour and introduced her to the crew and Anne got to see, you know, up close how an episode was shot. And Monkeys were on air for like two years. And during that two years, Anne spent a ton of time on this set uh, because every month there'd be like tons of information about the monkeys, the monkeys, the monkeys in the magazine. So she had to constantly get like new material out of them like on a monthly basis so really like she was working with them you know is she living in la at this point yes actually i think well she lived with her parents for a while and then she ended up getting her own place um so she she had her own place while working with the monkeys i don't know if at the start she did or not okay um i do mention later so we'll we'll work that one out okay um she became closest to Peter. She says they really had wonderful conversations and he would continually try to get Anne to drop acid with him. Mm-hmm. But she says she was too chicken. She never did. Uh, Mickey really lived up to his Joker status. She says uh, they were never really like personal great friends, but he they were friendly and professional and fun and she you know enjoyed spending time with him on set and same pretty much goes for Davy always warm always welcoming she says Davy was the most genuine uh so that just leaves Mike Nesmith and mm-hmm. uh, he was a different story she says he was Is sardonic. He kind of the one? he was the he's the one with the hat yeah okay yeah um she says he was like sardonic smart alecky uh 
from the start, Mike made it clear that he thought Tiger Beat was a joke and totally beneath him. He never treated her like a professional doing their job, but rather like, I guess, one of the tween girls reading it, like mm. bothering him. What's your favorite color? <laughs> you know, not looking at this like this is a woman doing a job that happens to cater to tweens. And so she says often his response was, that's the most blatantly stupid question I've ever heard. He also um, was super disrespectful and would purposely do things like make phone calls or eat or change clothing in the middle of their interview, like anything to show his disdain, I guess, and really would persist hoping she would finally get something usable out of him. Um, In the October six in October of 67, while Anne was once again trying to interview Mike, he turned to her and he said, Look, I'm 25 years old. I have a wife, a child, and another on the way. I don't have time for your teeny bopper shit. But I'll tell you what. If you fuck me, I'll do the interview. (gasps) No. Yeah. Anne says she didn't take the comment seriously. She assumed he was just trying to get some sort of reaction out of her. I don't know. Uh, Instead, she just turned and walked out of his dressing room. After that, she says that Mike didn't speak to her for nearly a year. And during that time, um, she got her kind of quota for Mike material out of Phyllis, who was Mike's lovely wife. Okay. So (laughs) (laughs) she would uh, meet up like monthly with Phyllis and interview Phyllis about Mike. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. That's good. At least she didn't have to deal with Mike. Yeah. Um, so with the monkeys as her main gig now and thought up a ton of wacky bylines and weird adventures. I mean, like I said, this monthly magazine, you're doing articles on the same people over and over and over again. They get really silly. Some of them were like Mickey's mom interviews Anne and just (laughs) anything to think up, you know, some, something that they could put in there. Uh, there's tons more in the book. You got to check it out. Uh, since she was now in contact with the British press, she became sort of a go-to cele- uh, go-to for any celebrity who wanted to meet some musician in L.A. So she says, like, Jimmy Page and the Yardbirds called her up one day and were like, hey, we're in town. Like, we want to meet the monkeys. <laughs> huh. Yeah. And so, and was thrilled when she would get these calls and uh, she would hook them up with like the monkeys or with whoever. And uh, it's crazy though. Cause like, yeah, like I want to hear more about Jimmy page and like what that was like. Yeah. But I feel like it's so perfect that Anne worked for tiger beat because she definitely, I mean, she's older and more mature than the readers, but she still has that like sweetness. She's not like, it's it's interesting also how you can be close in age to someone but be a different generation than them. Totally. Yeah. My dad's like that. He has an older brother like just by like a year, but he was very like 50s and he got the wife immediately and the baby and my dad was like a, the 60s. Yeah. And, yeah. And they grew up the same. They hung out, and, but Anne was like, the 50s okay where like miss p was like the 60s totally <laughs> um and yeah i mean zeppelin wasn't exactly a, like a tween favorite um but they were bands that Anne loved and she did get to 
you know, see all the bands play. She saw Pink Floyd, Zeblin, like everyone that you would want to see, the Stones. And uh, she just didn't interview them, I guess. Uh, she de- yeah, she says, I loved when groups like Zeppelin and the Yardbirds and Jethro Tull invited me to their Hollywood recording sessions, gave me backstage passes and front row seats to their concerts or invited me to their parties. But that's all she really says about them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, within two years, the monkey craze came and went and... Like all other sort of failed heartthrobs, the the magazine began sort of phasing them out until they were gone completely. Uh, her relationship with the band was over, but she had two post-monkey interactions with them. Um, she interviewed Peter for like a where are they or what are they up to now type of piece. And she says that when she visited his home, he opened his door stark naked. Oh, Peter. But then she went in and... And there there were naked people, like, all over the place. Oh. <laughs> and he told her, like, our home is clothing optional. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Peter was very in- interesting. I'd like to read his book. Does he have one? I don't know, but he should. Yeah. Um, if you're curious and kept her clothes on. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know what? I'm not surprised. She was a professional. She had to interview. That's right. So. <laughs> And she did actually have an interaction with Mike Nesmith again. Um, About 10 months after that long silence, Mike actually asked her to have lunch with him um, during... They were filming the monkey film, like, Head. And she went to cover that. And he, I guess, uh, wanted to build that bridge back, I guess. So... He confessed to her that his terrible behavior was his way of attempting to get her angry enough to, and I quote, write a story with some guts. Mm-hmm. So now what bothers me about this on so many levels is like just the idea that a man would look at a woman and be like, I bet if I'm the biggest asshole in the world to this woman, I can sculpt her into a literary goddess. Yeah, he <laughs> sounds know? like a real turd. Right? She'll never grow without my harassment. Um, But Anne seems to take this statement as him sort of confessing to her that he wanted her to be writing the pieces that kind of made them look real and less, like, clean and manufactured and everything. And it's interesting, and she says it in the book, how, like, um, most bands were like, don't print this, don't print this, but Mike is like, please print every shitty thing I do, you know? Yeah. It was like a turnaround um, and I, maybe I guess like a way to bury that hatchet and c- actually published an essay in, uh, May of 68 in the new musical express called Mike Nesmith wanted to, me to expo- expose how rude he was. <laughs> Unfortunately for Mike, it really didn't cause much of a stir because by then the monkeys really weren't selling papers. <laughs> um, there's much more in her book about the monkeys and, um, how difficult it was for her to kind of keep their untiger light untiger beat like behavior out of the magazine. And by that, I mostly mean like they were all dating and married and mistresses. And so there's plenty of monkey gold left in the book for (laughs) those who are looking for it. So yeah, the monkeys were her main story monthly but she still did take on others and when the raiders called her up again 
uh, they really loved the story she printed about their last tour. She was asked to come on their next one. So they were touring with the Standells and immediately Anne got a crush on the lead singer slash drummer. His name was Dick Dodd. Okay. Yeah. Um, they would ride the bus together and flirt. And um, another guy in the band, though, maybe inspired by his last name, Tony Valentino, he really thought that he was, you know, the cute one in the band. And when Anne got a knock on her door that night, she thought, oh, is it is it Dick? But no, it was Valentino. And Anne was so naive that she kind of invited him in and expected, like, oh, well, I guess we'll do an interview now. This is weird. Like, mm-hmm. I'm in my pajamas, but whatever. Uh, so you can imagine her horror when Tony stood up, unzipped his pants, and don't do that. Took it out nope. and uh, attempted to remove her pajamas. Um, she got up, yelled at him. His excuse was, I thought we'd just have some fun. Um, lucky for Anne, she left when he she told him to leave. And a few days later, the right man came knocking on her door. And her and Dick had this cute like make-out session. And he was a gentleman. And unlike Valentino, he didn't try anything further than that. Um, she says, so cute. She says she watched him kind of through a crack in the door after he left and he did some sort of like self-congratulatory like high (laughs) kick and everything because he didn't think she could see him anymore. (laughs) Um, when she left the tour, it was with a promise from Dick that he would be calling her soon. This was the first time Anne had truly felt kind of this womanly side of her and like ooh, like what are these feelings stirring up in me so when she got home she made a list like a to-do list one get on birth control nice two move out of my parents house and three pray that dick calls his name is just so fitting right now <laughs> <laughs> Um, when he returned home, Anne's list was complete. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. And uh, they sort of began dating. And after a few weeks on New Year's Eve of 66, the pair went to Anne's place after seeing the turtles perform at the whiskey. And I'll let Anne explain what happened next. She says, To say that losing my virginity was underwhelming would be an overstatement. Looking back, all I remember is there were spots of blood on my sheets and I was very sore after Dick left. I guess Dick felt the same because he never called her again. Ugh. Dick was a dick. Mm. <laughs> um, Anne was kind of over him by that point anyway, though, so she really wasn't that upset. She was just like, yeah, this okay. is good. Okay, good attitude, Anne. Yeah. In April of 66, Lou Adler invited Anne to a recording session he was doing with the Mamas and the Papas. Uh, she was there to witness the vocal track uh, being laid for I Saw Her Again. And she was also invited to cover the Monterey Pop Festival later that year. She really loved the experience. And there's a chapter about, you know, the goings on at the festival. And Anne brought her camera along. And she got tons of backstage shots and had a great time sort of catching up with all these musicians that over the past, you know, year or so she'd been meeting and interviewing and everything. Her next assignment, her next like big assignment was with the Bee Gees. Right away. Um, so I always thought it was Maurice Gibb, but she says it's pronounced as Morris. So oh. I'm going to call him Morris. Okay. 
So right away, Morris Gibb was all about Anne. He was giving her the eye during the band's two-hour interview. And when the interview was over, he came to Anne and she had this necklace on and he took it in her ha- his hands and was like, oh, this is really pretty mm-hmm. necklace. I like used to that line right? before. And was like, I made it. Would you like me to make you one? And he was like, yeah. And he gave her his London address. So when Anne wasn't busy at work, she was thinking thoughts of Morris and making him this necklace. And a few weeks after she'd sent it to him, she was awoken at 5 a.m. by her phone. Morris was calling. He was thrilled with his new necklace. And they ended up chatting on the phone for a while. And a week later, another 5 a.m. call happened. And these 20-minute international calls um, would add up to like about 300 American and that's in 1967 (laughs) so you can imagine how much money he was spending calling Anne like that's he must have felt yeah so Morris clearly thought she was worth more money than just that because he finally asked her if she would like to take a three-week vacation and come to England and visit him I'm googling a picture of him right now keep talking so Anne busied herself with preparations she worked things out with tiger beat and she consulted her mom they looked through like vogue and all these magazines her mom made her like a lot of her cool outfits so she uh, got a few new stylish outfits for the trip and when she arrived in england um her plane was three hours late but morris was still there waiting for her with his necklace on and this is like the coolest thing they walked out to the car and Whose car is it? It's John Lennon's Rolls Royce. Hey. Apparently, Morris had been hanging out with John and Cynthia the night before, and he must have told her, like, oh, this girl's coming to see me. And John was like, take the rolls. Oh, nice. <laughs> so the Bee Gees were the Bee Gees, sorry, were playing that night, and she got to watch side stage, and she says she was excited of, you know, I'm going home with this guy. <laughs> so um, Morris offered to pay for Anne's hotel should she not feel comfortable staying at the Gibb family home. But of course, Anne wanted to be near him. And he was still living with his parents and everything. So mm. she like really got to know the Gibbs. That first night, she got like this really sweet kiss and he departed downstairs to sleep in a cot while Anne slept in his bed. So very tiger beads. <laughs> yeah. Um, they had a couple days where they kind of furiously made out before the time was upon them. Um, Anne lied and told him she was a virgin because she says she kind of thought that that's what men wanted. Um, and she had actually quit like the birth control pills after, you know, her first kind of fiasco with Dick. (laughs) But, uh, Morris assured her that don't worry, you know, I'll, I'll pull out before you get pregnant. So yeah, so young, so naive. Uh, her, Uh Yeah. Her second go was almost as disappointing as the first, but it did bring them closer as a couple. So, you know, it's just so you, you got to work into it. Uh, the next night, Morris said this little gem. He said, I've heard some guys say that sometimes a girl will put it in her mouth. Isn't that weird? Isn't, isn't, isn't that weird? Um, <laughs> have you ever heard about that? I don't know. Like, maybe we should try it. Yeah, right? Um, Anne had never heard of this before, so she was like, uh, but she says that, she, like, his reaction seemed as, like, freaked out about it as well, 
So that was sort of all that they, it was said about it. They were just sat there and like, yeah, that's weird. So she wasn't ready for that. It okay. didn't happen. All he right. didn't push it. I guess he's also like a teenager at this point, right? Okay. Or like 18, 19. So they're both young and naive and inexperienced and not ready to, you know, go that far yet, I guess. So do people do that? Do, do you? Apparently yeah. some guys say some that guys their girls say- do that. Oh. <laughs> Learn something new every day. <laughs> And talks about visiting all the cool spots in London. They did a lot of shopping. She visited museums. Uh, she even did get a little work done. And most nights uh, ended up with them at the Speakeasy, which was one of the clubs. I think Kathy Etchingham and Jimi Hendrix in that episode, they mentioned that as well. Uh, I think Pauline mentions it. The she went there with the Frank Zappa, too. Yeah, probably. Yeah. That was like the happening place, I yeah, guess. Yeah, sounds like it. Uh, she does give some interesting gossip that Morris said. Mm, give it to me. He said that he didn't like Aunt Jane Asher, and he called her a see you next Tuesday. Yeah. Jane Asher. Ouch. That probably just means, like, she didn't laugh at one of his jokes or something, right? He also said that Paul slept around and that he really didn't understand people who cheat, which is interesting. Um, One night... They were out, and Lulu, who sings To Sir With Love, you don't know that? No, it's it was ringing a, a bell. It was a movie, To Sir With Love, and she sang the theme song. Okay. Interestingly enough, Michael DeBar is in that movie. I think it was, like, one of his first films. Nice. Yeah. Um, she, Lulu was, like, you know, a young British pop singer, fiery red hair, and she was the the toast of the town at this point in the pop world. And she came over to them at the concert that they were attending one night. And it was like, why don't you guys come out to dinner with me? So they did. But at the dinner, it was very clear to Anne that Lulu really wanted to have dinner with Morris and not the both of them. So Morris seems oblivious, I guess. She says like he was still attentive to her and lovely and everything. But when he got up to go to the bathroom uh, Lulu turned to Anne and said, when you're gone, I'll be the one dating Morris. <laughs> and Anne was unfortunately like, you know, too stunned and sweet to kind of say anything about that. And she never even mentioned it to Morris. Um, Anne was sort of already having those self-doubt feelings of like, why me? How can like this big musician want to be with me and everything? So I think Lulu's comments sort of fed into her insecurity um again Anne is like 19 here um but did, morris really did only have eyes for Anne, and after uh so much time spent in the family home he suggested like why not spend a weekend at a hotel just the two of us and and of course was like finally like ready to have some personal time with him and finally Anne had her romantic fireworks and the dream kind of romance that she'd always imagined it would be. They made love. They shared baths. They had these long personal conversations. They had fancy dinners. They would toast to the future. Uh, Morris even joked about like their future babies and everything. And he told her he loved her. And they even had like their song, Mm -hmm. which was Never My Love by the Association. Never my love, you know. No. 
I'm sorry, I'm really letting you down on this one. Um, I think you would recognize it. It was like one of those. Right? And worked on some Bee Gees pieces while she was there for the magazine, obviously. And she did a photo shoot with all the brothers and she went to the studio with him. Uh, Morris said that she'd inspired three of his new songs. Yeah, girl. And all those from then on, too. That's what he said. Okay. <laughs> Finally, the time came, though, that she had to go back home. Morris took her to the airport the way she came in John Lennon's roles. He told her, it won't be long before we're together. Don't forget for a moment that I love you. And they kissed and they hugged and cried and then Anne boarded her flight. So back home, Anne slowly got back into her old routine. She did have a pregnancy scare, which no doubt put her off the pull-out method for good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then she set back to, you know, her work with the monkeys as well as she was now covering the flying nun as well. And if you don't know, Sally Field was the flying nun okay so she was doing her work and morris would call several times a week and the bjs were coming to la in a few months so with uh the help of her mother and made morris this one-of-a-kind jacket for christmas and more morris sent her a gift which was this gorgeous jade pendant necklace with a card that read you are my inspiration <laughs> So when they arrived in January of 67, they had this, you know, magnificent time together. And Anne, of course, went to the live tapings that the BJs were doing. Did I call them BJs? You did. <laughs> Looks like you got something <laughs> on your mind. Oh, man. The BJs. It's so close when you see it there. And the Bee Gees were also headlining their first U.S. tour, and she rode with the band in their limo to the Anaheim convention gig, which was actually over, like, 9,000 people there. So the Bee Gees were, like, getting big. And also showed Morris around, and she took all the brothers to Disneyland. Cute. Yeah, they really were having a great time. And then the night before Anne's 21st birthday... uh. She had this really lovely night with Morris, and they made love, and afterward, he turned to her, and he said, I have something to tell you. Can you guess what it is? Um, he cheated on her with the, what's her tits from the restaurant? <laughs> Lulu and I are Lulu. married. Oh, God. So, of course, what? Anne was like, what the fuck? She kept her composure, though. She got up. She got dressed. She told him, like, let me drive you to your hotel because you sure ain't staying here. Um, oh, this is so heartbreaking, though. She, Anne had this birthday party planned the next night, like two parties, one, like, work-related and then one with her family. And she talks about how, like, Morris, Morris was telling her, like, when she was out there, like, write your family. Tell them we're, we're, we're in love. Like, tell... I, I can't wait to meet them and everything. So her family's, like, expecting... Thinks that, like, they're, like, a couple. Like, of course, Anne thought. And so Anne had to ask him, like, will you come to my birthday party and pretend so I don't have to, like, deal with this with my parents, like, on my birthday? So <laughs> Morris said, of course I will. And... Of course, when Anne dropped him off, she was a wreck. And the next night, she had to pretend nothing was wrong. She introduced their her parents. 
So after she had to, you know, with her friends and family do this dinner and this party, like totally heartbroken, she had to go again with Maurice to another party. uh, And there uh, Chuck and Ralph announced to everyone and Anne, surprise, you're now the new editor in chief. Oh, my. Well, at least this gave Anne something to smile over. Yeah. Um, she was still, of course, heartbroken and Morris and Anne had to say goodbye that night. He apologized. He asked her if they could, you know, kiss once more and then he was gone. And Anne says like she could tell that he was really upset and hurt and like he was feeling it as well. Well, maybe you shouldn't have married Lulu, right? Maybe Lulu did the thing. The <laughs> yeah, probably, probably. So, time with friends sort of helped ease her pain. You know, over a great length of time. She also mentions that Davy, like her first kind of day back at the monkey set, Davy immediately looked at her and like pulled her aside into his into his dressing room and was like I can see something's wrong like are you okay and I don't think she like really cried in front of anyone before like about this and his you know kindness she burst into tears like my boyfriend left me and he really like consoled her and tried to make her feel better so sweet Davy sweet Sweet Davy so then after Anne's kind of dealing with this she's starting to feel better and then one day her friend tells her, um, Lulu and Morris aren't married. Okay. Yeah. What the hell, Morris? Right? Get it together. Apparently, they dated a few times, and Lulu had agreed to do concert dates with the Bee Gees if their manager, Robert Stigwood, would convince Maurice or Morris to continue dating her. So, apparently, when Morris came to LA and he was with Anne he was like getting instructions from Stigwood like you have to break it off with her you can't be with her you have like be with Lulu this is your career these are your brothers like you have a responsibility so poor Anne who's like ever the professional she kept writing these tiger beat stories on both the Bee Gees and Lulu Oh, man. And she had to ignore her personal feelings. She had to, you know, write these glowing pieces about them. And Lulu actually came to L.A. and she had to photograph Lulu and uh, Davy Jones. They they were publicly, like, a, uh, there's a lot of uh, mention in the book about fake couples and stuff. Oh, like, okay. they would, publicity pu- couples, yeah. right? Apparently, Lulu and Davy were one and uh, Anne's friend Terry saw um, Morris months later and couldn't help saying something to him. And Morris admitted that he and Lulu had broken up and that he was terrible to Anne and that he, he wanted to call her and, you know, tell her everything. But he just didn't think it would be right to, you know, call Anne again and like, that she probably hates him and all that kind of stuff. Uh, he did say he would, like, never forget their time together and that she really was important to him and everything. Um, it seems like Lulu couldn't forget her vow to get Morris, though, because she was calling nonstop anytime the Bee Gees were in L.A. 
wanting to know like every move that he made where is he now where is he now and apparently morris would like try to dodge her calls but stigwood really saw the potential of like that celebrity couple and he really kept at morris and soon enough he and lulu were back on and in 1969 he did marry lulu and printed their wedding photo in the magazine and the whole experience taught Anne to like never really fall in love with one of the men she wrote about anymore and that from now on she wanted like friendships from from the musicians yeah i i think a lot of her feelings about morris bled into her next relationship because she began dating an old high school friend his name was don he had been recently home from Vietnam. Um, she just says she like cared for Don, but she didn't have like the intense feelings that she had with Morris. But still, in 1969, in the spring, Anne proposed to Don, <laughs> and they were wed by the summer. So Anne looks back now, and she says she like she realizes like so many women like of my generation, I kind of settled. I. Uh, I wanted some security. I'd I'd been through something shitty, and she she uh, she does. I I don't want to say she regrets it, but she like yeah yeah. I understand. Uh, they did have a cool honeymoon though. They went to Vegas to see Elvis, his first uh, concert appearance there. Cool. And speaking of Elvis, now is a good time to talk about the King. Let's talk about yeah. him. Like so many others, Anne was a big fan of his growing up, but then she sort of lost interest once the Stones and the Beatles came on the scene. And she began, when she began working again, she kind of discovered there was still this huge demand for Elvis in Europe and the UK. They were still all about him. So she began writing reviews of all of his films. And by the end of the 60s, Elvis she was getting back into Elvis and enjoying his new kind of grown-up persona. And in June of 68, Anne received tickets to this top-secret TV taping. Um, she'd been to MGM Studios before and even had a personal tour of Elvis's and Colonel Parker's office, which she describes as an Elvis shrine. <laughs> um, but she hadn't ever met the man himself. So... Anne got to be present for what people sort of refer to as his comeback special. She says Priscilla was there and she sat right behind Anne. (laughs) She describes her as petite and lovely. Uh, As if all this wasn't special enough, Anne got chosen by the producers to be one of the few audience members who got to sit on the platform around Elvis. She says his presence was indescribable. It had been eight years since Elvis had performed and those songs live or perform those songs live. Yet every twist, every hip grind was so precise, you felt the impact. As I watched him perform, I realized he was very aware of the power he possessed. He knew how to look sexy or cruel or tender, and sometimes I'd catch the slightest smile playing across his lips, suggesting he also knew he had the power to enthrall an audience. Mm. So Anne was shocked when the special came out and she saw her face kind of superimposed over Elvis's as he sang, I can't help falling in oh love with you. Oh my God. Yeah. So that night sort of sealed her fate and she, along with everyone else in the world, became like a full-blown Elvis fan all over again. So this meant she had constant requests for Elvis stories. 
So Elvis never really did personal interviews, uh, but a friend put her in touch with the publicist of his latest film, which was called Change of Habit. And she was invited to come on set with strict conditions. Like you do not approach Elvis. You do not talk to the other actors uh, or take photos. You're just there to observe and to write about it later. So she reported on her visit, but she left out the juiciest gossip until now. Yay. She says Elvis and his co-star, which happened to be Mary Tyler Moore Mm -hmm. at this time, would go lie on a blanket in the sunshine between takes and ferociously make out in front of everyone. (laughs) (laughs) And so it was like the oddest thing she'd ever seen since everyone sort of just pretended like they it wasn't happening they would just walk by and wander around and it was like okay just two people this this episode is all about the ferocious makeouts i know right um so also it really kind of freaked her out because both elvis and mary were married yeah and we know and sort of from the the other generation where it's like Oh my goodness, like adultery in public, like lying on a blanket. <laughs> so that must have been a little bit uh, crazy. So I made two other notes on set. Hardly anyone actually approached Elvis when he wasn't working and everyone seemed to have a really great time on set. She says Elvis would tell jokes and clown around with Mary or even burst into song. Uh, all the other sets that Anne had been on had been much more tense and professional, like the Flying Nun and uh, the Monkees. Uh, they had like a strict, you know, weekly episode they had to film in that specific time. And she, get, I guess a movie set was a little more laid back and fun. Um, one day, Anne noticed that the film's press agent was talking to Elvis. Suddenly, he was standing in front of her. Hello. Yeah. So they were chatting for a while and in between takes and sort of mentioned like, I was at your special and Elvis was like, oh my God, that's where I've seen you. Like, I've been looking at you like all week and, you know, right. So Elvis ended up getting called back at set because this was like inner, like little comments in between takes. And Anne unfortunately had to leave before she got to say goodbye to him. But the next morning she got a letter uh, from the Los Angeles, no, Las Vegas, sorry, International Hotel informing her of her rev- reservations for the Elvis opening. Aww. Yeah. So the day finally came and drove out to Vegas. She had an incredible time. I think Ike and Tina opened that show. So oh. like, holy crap, what a great lineup. After the show, Anne raced to the press conference and she got to take a photo with Elvis himself. So she congratulated him on the show and she got his trademark, thank you very much, back. Um, No photographers were allowed in the show, but Anne figured, you know, our motto, a no is free. And she asked and uh, she was allowed to. And she got to go the next night and shoot from the balcony and she ended up getting some amazing shots and they were in tiger beat and enemy and um and there are pictures of um that in her book i i think i know on the cover there's a picture of her and elvis and i'll definitely um post 
that for sure. So oh, I'm looking at the picture after watching the taping of Elvis's yeah, comeback special. Yeah, there's her and him. That's amazing. Right? Cool. Yeah, I see the picture. In 1970, and also got asked to be interviewed for part of the Elvis documentary, That's the Way It Is. In the original cut, they interview some of Elvis's fans, and Anne was for once like on the receiving end of questions. Um, when Elvis sang Love Me Tender in Vegas, he would kiss some ladies in the front row, and Anne got a nice tender kiss out of him, too. Hello. Um and that was like in the documentary, but unfortunately that scene was cut from the film, uh, but Anne did get to see it on the big screen when they were invited to look at the outtakes. And in 2004, a special DVD release of the film was made and Anne got to write the liner notes in the box set. That's so cool. Right? I love this. I know. She's so good. Um, after marrying John, Anne sort of began to cut back on her Tiger Beat lifestyle. Don was apparently jealous of the of not only that she made so much more money than him but that she was going out and hanging out with these bands and living this like fun life they would go to concerts and celebrities would come over to her and talk to her and he he wasn't able to handle that i guess um to please him she did stop taking a lot of the jobs that she would have loved to do she stopped going out on tour completely um she also would send her co-workers to record releases and she was basically like giving away all the perks that her job gave her you know concert mm, tickets everything yeah. in 1972 the magazine and all their spin-offs were doing so well that they needed a bigger office space during the move ralph offered Anne his old lovely desk because he was getting a new one so Anne was like, great, I'll take your desk. Inside of it, she found this slip of paper that was left. And the paper had all the salaries of the staff on it. Oh, God. Yeah. So one big thing that stuck out to her was the fact that she was earning half of what a male editor of a newly <sighs> launched sister magazine was earning. So she felt like very hurt and betrayed. I mean, she wasn't stupid. She knew she wasn't making as much as everyone else but to have this man who just come in on a brand new magazine making like you know double what she did is infuriating yeah so she went when she came home she told dawn about it and she broke down in tears and everything and her husband told her like you need to quit you need to make a statement about women's rights and equal pay and all this right so Anne went to work she confronted ralph about the pay difference and ralph gave the excuse this just drives me crazy the reason Bill made more money was because he had a wife and a kid. Oh, God. Right? He did offer to double her salary immediately, but at that point, Anne, unfortunately, kind of felt she had a, a duty to obey her husband. No! She quit. Um, it certainly, of course, didn't change anything for the better in regards to her marriage either. Um, her and Don ended up divorcing. Uh, she, she ended up moving to Salt Lake City. She found new love in a man she uh, she had two kids with as well. She adopted two sons with him, sorry. Um, and kept in touch with the women that she worked with at Tiger Beat. And in 2005, uh, Lottie told her something that finally sort of made her feel good about quitting. Um, 
Lottie told her that when she wasn't in the office, Ralph and Chuck would never call her by name, but referred her as the star fucker. Ew, no. Right? So, and said, so many turns it's disgusting, right? And says, Lottie's awful admission set me free in a way. I'd regretted my decision about leaving for a long time, but I realized that my exit was more than just me standing up for women's rights. It was kind of a self-preservation. Yeah. So that's it for my episode. But I do want to mention there are entire chapters, like entire chapters I left out of this. I'm going to sort of like sum them up quickly, but like, anyone who's interested in these people read the book there's so much more uh she really loved working with dino desi and billy uh she has a whole chapter on her relationship with them if you don't know dino it was dean martin's son desi was lucy and desi's son i'm i'm so sorry i don't know who billy is (laughs) oh poor billy um but she got to like meet dean martin she got to interview lucy even from like that and there's a really cool chapter about that um of course bobby sherman was like a huge teen idol of that time she has a chapter on working with him uh to some bobby sherman up apparently he was like a super joy to work with oh yeah i'm seeing pictures of her and david cassidy yes that's another yeah uh, David Cassidy, the Partridge family, was really um, a big part of her job as well. Apparently, David was like a brat when for like the first half of their working relationship. But he was the youngest teen idol and he had like no support system and he just got famous like that. So, I mean, that's understandable. There's also a huge chapter on like the Osmonds and working with them. And um, she talks about like their religion, like they were Mormons and Um, she spent a lot of time with her family and I think even went to like the wedding of one of them. So there's a lot of, there's so much more. There's so much more. She also like tiny pieces. She kind of mentions people like Harry Nilsson, Sally Field, Jackson five, Elton John and Murray, uh, Kurt Russell, Michael Parks. There's just so much more. She also has a few pages about hanging out with the who, um, Roger Daltrey ended up inviting her back to his hotel room, but Mm -hmm. she was too shy to go. And I think that's one thing she does regret. One thing about this book that really struck me um, that we don't really have time to address and, and didn't really address it because I mean, it's her memoir. This is a whole other thing, but I thought it would be so interesting to kind of see. I mean, we, we sort of have seen the effect that, being a teen idol can have on you yeah you know sometimes it's not so nice like for instance she mentions like Cassidy being a brat but then on the other hand it's like well he was like what 14 15 trying to handle fame and she mentions like Susan Day had um they would write all these stories about her being like the perfect size and her weight and but now finding out like Susan Day had an eating disorder that whole time and it's it's an interesting thing to like read about the magazine and the things that they publish and everything and then reflect on how it affected these people's lives super interesting that's like a whole other book there but i really thought that was interesting it really brought up and then i thought about like jtt devin sawa andrew keegan you know brad renfro i know brad is deceased now uh I don't know what the other ones are doing, you know, like it's, it's so interesting how like it seems like you've made it and for like a year or two, you're like the hottest thing. Every 
every magazine. Every... And then you hit puberty. Yeah. And <laughs> it's crazy, like, how how quickly they come and go. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. I Her wasn't expecting fun. anything, and it was just such a nice, it was a really, really, really nice treat. Yeah. So thank you. It was you a ton of fun. For a gorgeous episode. You're welcome. And yeah, there's still a ton of The pictures more. are beautiful. Yeah. Um, super, yeah. And again, it's called Meow, My Groovy Life with Tiger Beats Teen Idols. It's Ann Moses. Um, it's great and yeah there's plenty more so much more material in there and of course what i told you there's still much much more like detail very it's very it's a very fun read well you did a great job thank you thank you very much i'm excited for next week yeah next week's the interview and then the week after that is yes. um, my silly episode uh, can't wait okay well thank you everybody for listening yeah come find us uh on Facebook, on iTunes, on uh, Instagram, Muses and Stuff, Muses and Stuff Podcast, and Twitter, Shanti, and links. Yeah. So thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Hello, friends. This is Mark Nell, executive producer of the Table Read Podcast, where imagination meets performance. As we wrap up an incredible season one, we want to take a moment to express our heartfelt gratitude to each and every one of you who tuned in and supported us on this amazing journey. Season one was nothing short of extraordinary. We delved into captivating scripts that transported us to worlds beyond our imagination, thanks to the brilliant writers who delivered these works. But what really brought these stories to life were the talents of our amazing actors. But wait, the excitement doesn't end there. As we bid farewell to season one, we are thrilled to announce the launch of season two. Get ready for more gripping narratives, more unforgettable characters, and more mesmerizing performances that will keep you on the edge of your seat. We have some big surprises coming. The Force will definitely be with you. So stay tuned, stay engaged, and most importantly, stay excited. From all of us at the Table Read Podcast, thank you, and let's make season two even more memorable together.